0: You're listening to a podcast edition of Closer to Truth. For more information about this series, visit our website, closertotruth.com.
1: Many people assume that immortal souls exist. I do not. Many clergymen teach that immortal souls are the real you. I do not believe them. Would immortal souls enable life after death? I wish it were so. In traditional religion, an immortal soul is united with your body, but only briefly. At death, your soul, the real you is decoupled from your body and freed, to be judged by God, according to Western religions, to be reincarnated in different bodies or melded back into cosmic consciousness, according to Eastern religions. Science dismisses anything non-physical, and some theologians reject immortal souls. But if no immortal souls, What, then, of eternal life? What's wrong with immortal souls? I'm Robert Lawrence Kuhn, and Closer to Truth is my journey to find out. I start in England at Oxford University with the former Regis Professor of Divinity, Keith Ward. An ordained priest in the Anglican Church, trained in philosophy, he often surprises with non-traditional ideas. What's with immortal souls, Keith? Keith, I would like to believe that there is a soul, but I was trained as a brain scientist in neurophysiology. And so my intellectual inclination is to materialism, physicalism, that what we think is the mind is just the product of the brain. How do you view it as both a philosopher and a theologian? As a philosopher, I would actually say um, that
2: your starting point is perception, it's a set of perceptions a set of concepts. And from that you build up a picture of what the world is like. But you can never get rid of consciousness. Whatever view you come up with on body and mind, consciousness is not reducible to Particles which are publicly observable in space and time. I, I'll just not give way on that. I, just, because I, it seems to me so obvious that I, I have to say I don't see how anybody can deny it.
1: You've used the analogy between mind and matter as between subject and object. Uh, help me understand what that means. People
2: start from thinking that people who put consciousness first assume that we are usually Cartesian dualists. That's the phrase which is yes, out, right,
1: right, Substance dualism. Yeah, so there you exists. have a
2: mind and you have a body and you've right. got to get the two together and right. you do it. So some place in the brain, right. of course, that doesn't work. When Descartes said, I am a thing that thinks, he wasn't thinking of mind and body as two different substances at all. He was thinking of the thinker and the perceiver as the subject which is aware of its perceptions and which is engaged in having its thoughts. So what you've got is a subject thinking. The subject is not a different substance. Where it all goes wrong is to think, well, you've got matter over here, you've got mind over there, how do you fit them together? So subjects and objects are always together. There's no subject without an object. I mean, there's no mind without um, some objectivity, some environment in which it's embodied. Does a soul fit into that structure? I think that's what the soul is. Um, (laughs) Aristotle called it the intellectual soul in a human being, as that which thinks, which has the capacity of thinking abstractly and of deciding. And anything which has those capacities is a soul. So why shouldn't you say that there's a subject who has those capacities embodied in uh, a brain uh, and a world like this, and it's that embodied subject
1: which is the soul? That's not the traditional definition. It is, of, yeah. Uh, sorry. It is not the common perceived definition. Oh, that's true. But I mean, the <laughs> common perceived
2: definition is that souls fly out of your body and go through the window. Popular, Popular. folk beliefs right, about the right. soul uh, have no relation to the actual theological traditions in
1: the Abrahamic faith. In the Hebrew Bible, the word nefesh, which is translated soul, sometimes talks about nefesh dying. Nefesh dying? Yeah, yeah, that the soul
2: can die. I mean, that's true. I mean, it's particularly the Hebrew tradition that uh, the soul is not... Another thing, I mean, perhaps Plato is to blame. I love Plato, but the the idea that a soul is in a star and comes down to have a body, which is the tomb of the soul, (laughs) and then is released to have a better life without its body that is totally not either a Jewish or a Christian or a Muslim belief about the soul. The, uh, The soul is an embodied subject of intellectual and moral. You need to tread a very narrow line, I'd th- say theologically, between saying that souls are better without their bodies, <laughs> which is wrong, or saying cells souls are nothing but their bodies, but that, that souls are the embodied agents which are created by God.
1: No traditional immortal souls lurking here. Keith points to perception as our window on reality, and to consciousness as irreducible. He says souls are embodied agents created by God, a position ridiculed by materialists and repudiated by theologians. But this is no cloistered academic debate. It affects eternal life, if such be possible. Personally, I feel the hit. Keith asserts that the traditional soul is rooted in Plato, not in the Bible. That's what's wrong with immortal souls. That's no surprise to scholars, but a shock to Christians. That's a trail I'll follow by exploring the Hebrew Bible. I go to New York to meet a professor of Jewish philosophy, a rabbi of conservative Judaism, Neil Gilman. Neil, the common perception of Judaism, like Christianity, is that the teaching is that we are souls that have been united with our body, but the real me is an immortal soul. You teach that that's not true.
3: That's Plato. That's great Greek philosophy. And um, Plato believed that we are made up of two different, you know, Stuffs. (laughs) There is the physical body, and there is, within the physical body, uh, an imprisoned spiritual substance uh, that was eternal from the beginning and is immortal. At death, that spiritual entity departs from the body, the body disintegrates, and the spiritual substance, the soul, the psyche, goes up to be uh, with the world of forms, the Platonic forms.
1: Common perception of Common most perception, Western religions right. today.
3: Yep. That certainly is not the Jewish or the biblical, certainly not the biblical point of view. Although everybody wants to read it back into, yes. into Hebrew scriptures. The words nefesh, neshama, uh, ruach in the Bible. Those
1: are three Hebrew words three that are Hebrew used words, to right. translate spirit right. or soul or people have used
3: that. They ended up meaning that, but largely post-biblically. Yeah. In the Bible itself, they mean the living person. Uh, there's no sense in the Bible that I made up of these two different stuffs. I am one, uh, and uh, at creation, in, in the second chapter of Genesis, God breathed into this clod of earth nishmat the breath of life, uh, and uh, out of that, this first person became a living human being. What God did then was was vivified the clod of earth he didn 't put anything into it; mm. he vivified it so it 's only in post biblical times when Jews began to read Greek literature that this dualistic view of the human person developed so that at death uh, they just bought Plato right then the shama leaves the body and goes to be with god, and the the body itself. Uh, goes into the earth, deteriorates, disintegrates, and at the end of days, God will raise the body from the dust, reunite it with that person's soul, and the, the individual human being, reconstituted as he or she was on the earth, will come before God in judgment. But that's Talmudic. That's post-biblical. So if we stick with the Bible. Stick with the Bible. What do we have? What, what do we is have? The human Death being. is final. Death is final. Sorry. <laughs> Yeah, okay, I'm coming to you to Death is final. Uh, I'd, rather, I'd rather minutes. know the truth
1: than to be happy. In the Hebrew Bible, the human soul is not immortal. That's a rather major wrong. Why then is this false belief so common in Western religions? Some say that revelation is progressive and the Hebrew Bible is primitive. How then to know what in the Bible to believe? Picking and choosing this or that pro-soul or anti-soul scripture gets my vote of no confidence. But who gave Western religions a monopoly on the truth of souls? In Eastern religions, immortal souls are even more central to worldviews. I must explore immortal souls from an Eastern perspective. I ask a leading authority on Buddhism, a former Sri Lankan diplomat, Ananda Guruge.
4: The very important concept of soul has been developed a few centuries before the Buddha by the Upanishadic thinkers of India. And they, in fact, thought in terms of a universal soul which at a particular time split up into myriads of pieces and these myriads of pieces are the individual souls of all living things, living beings. And this soul be in a situation of suffering because it has separated from the universal soul and is not seeing its identity. And the ultimate bliss was to be attained by the knowledge, the realization that the individual souls and the uh, universal soul is one and the same. Buddha came into that scene and Buddha was reacting to that particular concept and it was difficult for him to accept anything that could remain outside the first principle of reality that uh, he identified. First principle is impermanence. This can have two meanings. One meaning is, there is no soul. And the early translators said, Buddhism teaches soullessness. Mm. Second is to say, there is no entity that is permanent and eternal which you can call yourself, which is controlling you from within. How can Buddhism negate the soul altogether? Mm. First, we don't have a common understanding of what the soul is. What we mean today by soul is, is there a connection between one life and another? The Buddhist will say, certainly, it is that one consciousness that came into the other life. But Buddha's idea of Atta is, that doesn't belong to you. You can't call this in yours because you can't even tell you, that, uh, tomorrow let me not get a headache. <laughs> if the headache comes, you get it. <laughs> So we say there is no entity which is permanent and there is no self which you can call your own.
1: So how then does this relate to the Buddhist teaching
4: of reincarnation? We do not talk in terms of reincarnation because reincarnation by the very definition, even the dictionary definition, means something permanent is taking a new body. Now, Hindu concept is reincarnation. They say that uh, the permanent soul takes on new bodies with every life just as we throw away our worn-out clothes and take something <laughs> new from the wardrobe. That is the concept. In Hinduism? Hinduism. Buddha uh, We believe in what is called re-becoming a consciousness that can keep on moving from one life to another.
1: Because it's the same consciousness, but it's totally changing of what it, it, its essence is. Yes. In Eastern religions, there's nothing wrong with immortal souls, which seem more important even than God. Hinduism has a robust immortal soul that is primary and permanent. Buddhism, which stresses impermanence, has a weaker form, a consciousness that is rebecoming as it transmigrates from one body to the next. These systems of souls, constructed by generations of Eastern sages, do have a kind of internal consistency. But I am not enamored of the Eastern immortal soul. What's more, I track the trends. And across the globe, immortal souls are losing support among philosophers and even theologians. So why do some Christian philosophers still support immortal souls? I ask Rutgers professor Dean Zimmerman. Dean is young and smart. Isn't he embarrassed? to justify souls.
0: Dean, as a philosopher, how do you begin to describe the soul? There's a whole spectrum of positions. I would call any of you substance dualism if it posits something that has mental states or is crucially involved with my having mental states and it doesn't have very much in common with the stuff that ordinary non-thinking objects are made out of. So if you're forced to posit a different extra kind of stuff in order to to have thinkers, then you have a kind of dualism. Now the most extremely dualistic view would say, not only do I not have mass or charge, not only am I not in space, but I'm not even in time. What's more, I'm not even a concrete entity. I'm abstract, like a property or an essence or a number or something like that. Now, that's a crazy view. Others have said, I'm outside of time and space, but I'm a concrete, contingent entity. The most common sort of dualism, made famous by Descartes, is a dualism where I'm in time, I have mental episodes one after the other, uh, and they happen simultaneously with various episodes that happen to my body, but I'm not in space. And somehow, this non-spatial thing gets hooked up with a body. But there have been other dualists who have said, no, in order for this soul to get hooked up with this body and that soul to get hooked up with that body, they have to be somehow differentially related. They can't all just be in one place, as it were, outside of space. So what does that imply about a soul if one exists? I mean, does it have parts? Is it there a shouldn't component be as? vague. It shouldn't be the sort of thing that can gain and lose parts rapidly, or then it's just another thing like the body. and so. I think there's a genuine possibility that they're about an extra thing that comes with consciousness. So when a brain gets in the right sort of state, it may generate consciousness and generate a subject uh, to go with it.
1: Does that have any implications on whether that
0: soul will survive the death of the body? No, it it doesn't. I don't see that it has any any consequences. So in fact- Because most people assume that it would. Once you get to a soul, you're automatically- You're you're home free. Yeah, right, right, right. You got it forever. Right, so if you think they're souls because you think brains generate consciousness, maybe it remains radically dependent upon the brain. Certainly, I think, unlike Descartes and lots of earlier dualists, we've got really good reason to believe that my ability to think and function uh, uh, mentally at all depends massively upon the proper functioning of this brain. I'm, uh, I can't think without it. Uh, take it away, presumably, I can't think at all perhaps take it away, and poof, I just cease to be. Now, if you're a theist, you've got reason to suppose that even if the soul would naturally go away, God might miraculously want to keep you around. And, and of course, the, 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 the orthodox view about, about persons and souls, according to Christian theism anyway, is that souls naturally have bodies, and that they're going to get bodies again. (laughs) So it's an unnatural state for a soul to be in, for God to be sort of sustaining it without its body.
1: Nice, Dean. I like his categories of potential souls. Not in time or space, or in time but not in space, or in both time and space, even though none of them, of course, may actually exist. On the big question of whether the soul survives death, Dean is ambivalent because he recognizes that our consciousness depends massively on our brains. Immortal souls seem such a mishmash of afterlife inventions. I am adrift, my life after death hopes unmoored. As for anecdotal stories as supposed evidence, whether of past lives or near-death experiences, I weary of them all. Call me biased, but I trust only analysis. That's why I visit a leading philosopher of religion who integrates science into his systems, Philip Clayton. Philip, if I have to admit to you, at the end of the day, After all of my strivings, I really
5: want to know, is there an afterlife? First, let's imagine that we can make sense of the view that there's some sort of higher divine power. I've called it panentheism, a sense of a divine that includes the world within itself, but is also more than that world. And so if you'll give me that as a premise. I'll give you anything you want. (laughs) Get me an afterlife, you, you get anything. Right, and imagine that there's something that it is to be you or me which is more than the sum total of the physical parts of what we are, right? And thirdly, imagine that this divine being has a property of being eternal, that it pre-existed the world, somehow was creatively involved in creating the world, and survives even after the end of this physical universe. And the trouble is, even with those three assumptions, there's not necessarily a continued personal existence after death, because it might be that the only way in which you survive is as a memory within the divine, a divine who who has experienced every moment of your life and forgets nothing. What does that mean? People can keep photographs of me after I die. Uh, what does that mean? Oh, but this is more than that. Imagine that you've been Uh, intimately known, every thought, every response, every part of your body known during your lifespan. You
1: know, that kind of makes me mad at this pantheistic, panentheistic God of yours. He's taken advantage of me. He made me
5: live my life and struggle and now he's got my memories and I don't have existence? You can keep him. So let's see if we can get something stronger, okay? And this is how it would go. If we can exist within the divine now, In panentheism, we exist as subjective centers of activity within the overarching divine. That's not trivial, because in much of the history of Western philosophy and theology, one couldn't think those two together. A subjective substance and a God as substance can't exist at the same time in the same place. They have to be separated. On this view, if it works, it allows us, already in the here and now, to understand a divine subjective presence including subjective moments within it. Now, let's see if we could think that into the future after our death. Right. And I'll call it the position of eschatological hope. Eschaton means the, the doctrine of final things. And hope, because it can't be a proof. It's only, I would say, fair. a, a co- coherent hope. Okay. And this is how it would go. After the death of my body, is it possible that that subjective part of myself, which is more than the body, is retained in existence within the divine, not supported by the atoms and molecules that support thought now, but supported directly by the divine presence. And your argument is, is because it's there now. Yeah. If it's possible for that to happen now, my argument, it would be possible for it to happen in the future after the death of my body. So I guess the big step is the first. If, if it can happen now, I mean, I'm, I'd be more willing to give you the second step if they give you the first. The first step's tough. Oh, well, we've done pretty well then. I mean, if you'll give me the second step, a lot of philosophers resist that one. Then it turns out, and this is a lovely development of the conversation, that the question of survival of death isn't about the future. It's about whether we can understand ourselves now as being real subjects within a divine presence. If yes, then the second step is not so hard. But if that notion here and now is incoherent, we're stuck. Because what can traditional theism do? It has to create some kind of place to put all these substances, these selves, because they can't be within God. So you get in the, at the end of the Bible the new Jerusalem, a new heaven and a new earth, with streets made out of gold, I presume golden lampposts and so forth. That's not a a belief of the afterlife I could hold. But if now we exist in some way within the divine, then I could imagine a space not of streets and lampposts, a space of divine presence, where we might exist in the future.
1: I repeat, I do not believe that immortal souls exist. And many theologians and religious philosophers, especially those who take the Hebrew Bible seriously, are coming to the same conclusion. I could be wrong. I'd like to be wrong. Who wouldn't? Live forever, never lose family and friends, bask in beatitudes, oneness with God or the cosmos, whatever that may mean. Immortal souls, if real, should be so monumental a presence, how could they not be, well, more obvious? I was trained in brain science, yet I have an intuition, which I do not trust, that there is more to reality than only the physical. So what happens when my two beliefs collide? Non-physical reality exists. Immortal souls do not exist. I get consciousness as clue, which guides me closer to truth.